where she lives, so just thank the Lord for some healing there, and maybe a little bit of a, a respite for uh, Miss Gloria for a few days anyway, so uh, just continue to pray for them as well. Well, we come to an exciting part of the story in Ruth chapter 4. The whole story is exciting to me, isn't it? Uh, you as well. Uh, how God has worked and taken the circumstances that maybe mankind would look at and say, well, this is a terrible circumstance, a terrible situation, and turn it around for something that would bring glory to himself. Remember way back <clears throat> excuse me, in chapter 1, how uh, Naomi and Elimelech, they leave the land of Judah because of the famine. And uh, there's no king, king's ruling, it's chaos, it's dark time, there's famine. And they go away, and as they get there, Elimelech dies, Malon, Chilion dies. They hear of God's goodness in the land back, so they go back. And, and you, know, you know, Naomi's got some bitterness going on in her life, and, and all these things just seem to be compounding. But then God just steps forth and shows His mercy and His grace and His favor and just begins to just shower His love down on Ruth and Naomi, but Ruth especially through the special relationship with the kinsman and redeemer, Boaz. And it's amazing that you see pictures of humility and gratitude and, and servitude and just over and over how God is working behind the scenes to bring about His perfect will. And it's so amazing to me to consider that often in life we kind of have expectations, don't we? Uh, we're going to do X, Y, Z, and ABC will happen. And God says, well, you know, that sounds great, but no, that's not my plan. And it's amazing how we get a little upset and frustrated when our plan doesn't work, but what God has is so much better than what we even asked for. And God just continues to show His favor on these, on these two. So as we come into Ruth chapter 4, we're going to begin to see the, the story as it unfolds leading to the wedding here. So if you would follow along as I begin reading chapter 4, verse 1. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz called him by name and said, Come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, Sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the land of Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do so. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know, because there is it anyone other than you to redeem it, and I am next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also require Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. The Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself, or, or I will ruin uh, my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, because I can't redeem it. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the Redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, Buy back the property yourself. Boaz says to the elder and all the people, You are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech. Chilion and Malon. 
I will also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property, so that his name will not disappear among the relatives or from the gate of his home. You are witnesses today. The elders and all the people who were at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrata and famous in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, born to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity we have to look at this story in your word. And I pray, God, that you might speak to our hearts. Lord, as we pray often, I ask God that you would just, Lord, remind us of those things that maybe we have once heard and have forgotten or have not practiced. And yet, Lord, if there be new things that we need to learn today, might you speak them to our hearts so that we can apply them. So, God, I pray that you give clarity of thought and speech, Lord, as we go through this story. And, uh, Lord, help us to learn what you'd have for us to learn this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at this story, it gets exciting here. And right away, there you see the order and, and, and the progress of how things are going to unfold. And you see right away in verse 1 that Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. You say, well, what's the significance of the gate? It was the most important place within a, within the a community. It was there that all legal transactions would take place. It was there that in the presence of witnesses, uh, things would be, decisions would be made. It was there oftentimes that the scribes would come in there and act as attorneys and act as lawyers to settle disputes. It was one of the most important places within a community that business would be transpired. So as he says earlier in cha- or later in chapter 3, he would make it a point to go there the next day and have this conversation that was so important with the other uh, redeemer that, was, that would be a possibility to redeem Ruth. So he takes it out and he goes over to the, the gate of the town and he sits down there. And soon the family redeemer says, Boaz has spoken about comes by. But this is interesting to me because as he comes by, and he's got a plan. And I think what one author said, he says, uh, you know, oftentimes in our conversations from day to day, we have information that we want to share with somebody, and we often kind of couch that information like this. Do you want the good news or the bad news first? You know, I I think uh, God had given uh, Boaz a certain amount of intuition to know how to deal with this situation. He gives him the ability to, to handle the circumstance in such a way that it couches it as, wow, this is great. There is land. It's available. Yes, I want it. He wanted the good news first. And so uh, God inspire, uh, uh, gives, gives Boaz the wisdom on how to approach this. And so he says to, Bo, uh, to this other redeemer, there is a land that our brother, now it wasn't necessarily a physical brother, an actual sibling, but somebody who is part of our family, part of the circumstances of, of our clan, so to speak. And he says, here's the circumstance. So let's, let's read just real quickly again. So he went over there, sat down, and said, Then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, Sit here. So before this begins to unfold, he grabs ten men. And remember, this is a place of importance. It's a place of prominence. Anybody who is anybody would be there. It's like the morning coffee at Hardy's. Um, you know, everybody, all the old men of the town are gathering there, and they're drinking up their coffee, and they're having a great time. Some of you don't know exactly what that means. 
In Mississippi, everyone gathers from First Baptist Church every, every morning at Hardy's for their morning coffee. It's where all of life's decisions are made. No. So they're gathering here. He grabs ten men, and they begin to sit down and share it. Because in that day, ten men created a quorum, and in the presence of ten men, legal decisions could be made. So there was a reason why he didn't take nine or eight or six or whoever happened to be standing around. He said, I want this to be a matter of legality. I want to bring ten men in, men who are uh, people who have influence, people who would sit here, who would hear the circumstance out, and then the decision would be made in the presence of these men who would create a legal uh, quorum. So as they sat down, he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the land of Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do so. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. So here's the circumstances. They come in together. He says, I want you to know about this. And he couches the great information. Elimelech has some property. Boy, doesn't that look appealing. And you must remember this here, the circumstances. The famine has kind of moved on now. Remember, that was the whole reason they left and now they're coming back. And this land is still in the name, and uh, it's available. And man, who wouldn't want land? I mean, if, if, if the land is starting to produce, and the rains are falling, and the crops are going to begin to grow, who wouldn't want this land? Who wouldn't want you know, to have opportunity to grab this and snatch this up? But remember, in this great opportunity, he says, this is not just a handshake between two guys. You're in the presence of these witnesses. So he goes on here. He says, if you don't want to do it, let me know, because if you don't, I'm going to do it. Verse 5, then Boaz says, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, now remember, I want it. Hold on, here's the caveat. The day that you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Whoa, that changes everything. You, you, whoa, whoa. I, I want the land, but I don't know that I necessarily want Naomi, and I don't want to take care of her until she dies, and I don't really want to take Ruth the Moabitess. I mean, I don't want children who are going to be half Gentile and half Jew. I mean, that, that's not going to happen, because there are some serious implications here by making this decision. No. Uh, count me out. All yours, Boaz. Have at it. And can you imagine Boaz just for a moment? Inside, yes! I remember that feeling. And I've got to share this just for a moment. When I got married, or, uh, let, me, let me back up here. When I started dating Dawn, I, I remember very clearly, and she's downstairs so I can get away with this. You know, when we first started dating, I, I called my mom, as I said before, and I said, I found the girl I'm going to marry. And my mom just acted as if I never said a statement. And she, uh, well, how are your classes going? I said, Mom. I said, I found the girl I'm going to marry. You made a commitment that you were not going to get married until you're done with college. I said, Mom, I'm not getting married. But I did find the girl I'm going to marry. Fast forward a couple years. She dumped me for another guy. And then all of a sudden it was made clear in the middle of my junior year. That guy that she dumped me for dumped her. I said, turn around, it's fair play. But inside, I'm like, yes, 
there is a God. <laughs> and I remember very, 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 uh, very clearly as if it were yesterday, that moment thinking, yes, it's going to happen. But you know, inside Boaz had to be doing cartwheels. This man does not want the responsibility. But remember what happened in the end of chapter 3? In the process of Ruth making herself known to Boaz, Boaz lifted up the, or the, 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 cover, the talit that was covered on her feet. It was a significant movement, a significant action that said, I am willing to take the responsibility. I am willing to take ownership of this situation. And I will provide for every need. Remember what he said? Whatever you need from this point on, I will take care of it. He made the commitment. The commitment was already made in his heart and in his mind. He said, you've not chased after these other younger guys. His heart was wrapped up in sealing the deal with Ruth. And when this other redeemer says, no, 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 I can't do that. Inside he's like, well guys, you saw it. You guys are all witnesses. And God began to work through this. And the Redeemer replied, verse 6, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my own inheritance. See, here's the situation. Remember how it's couched? It's couched in this idea that if you take the land, you also have to take Naomi and Ruth to perpetuate the family name on that property. So it's almost as if this is a situation. I'm going to acquire this debt and pay it off, and continue to provide only to give it to her children again. How does that benefit me? It doesn't benefit you unless you love the person that you are redeeming. Then it's not about you. It's about them. And that was the situation with Boaz. Boaz says, I don't mind. It's not about... And here's an interesting thing about this. In Solomon's temple, the two pillars, you know whose name was on one of those pillars? As being a name to be remembered? Boaz. That's interesting. See, Boaz was not interested in carrying out his own name. But yet, what does God's Word tell us? He who will be least among you, he's a servant of all. But the bottom line is, he, he put himself lower and, and his name is remembered. He's exalted. Boaz wasn't about creating a legacy for himself. The other guy says, oh, wait a minute. And you know, God's Word doesn't even tell us his name. We don't know what his name is. I'm sure it was soon forgotten. But yet he was there. I can't do this. I'm going to jeopardize my own inheritance for my own family. I'm not going to acquire the debt only to lose it again. You go ahead and do it. I don't want to deal with that. So he says, take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. And then we get a little bit of a history lesson here in verse 7. It says that in an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. But this is interesting, verse 8. So the Redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, Buy back the property yourself. So here it is. The man takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz. says, it's yours. What is the significance of that? The significance is this. 
Symbolically, my soul of my foot will not step onto that property. It is yours. I'll not try to come back behind you and get it. I'll not try. See, the whole, the whole idea behind a love right marriage was that you had to not only assume the property, but the responsibilities of the property. And in that love right marriage, the responsibility was both Naomi and Ruth. He didn't want that responsibility. He didn't want that commitment. But he says symbolically, as he gave him his sandal, my foot will not tread on this property. The sole of my foot will never touch that ground. It's yours. And it's done in the presence of all these witnesses. Imagine just for a moment that Boaz is like, yes, it's done. It's over. She's mine. It's exciting to consider. But this other question comes to my mind as well as I'm reading through the story. As we read through this story in particular, it's like, wow, that's a, that's a, you know, the, the, a happy ever after marriage. But sometimes God doesn't do what we want Him to do. Sometimes God doesn't work it out to where I get what I want. What do I do then? I mean, just hypothetically, what for a moment if, if God would have said, you know what, I'm going to make it so this other guy will take the responsibility. What if... Because I think sometimes we live in a world full of expectations. Where I want my way. I want God to do this, this, and this. And that way I can be comfortable. And, 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 and you know, just life can just be hunky-dory and just be great. I mean, if God would just do this. But that's not the reality of so, so often in our lives, is it? Sometimes God doesn't give us what we want. As I said earlier, sometimes God gives us better than what we ask for. But sometimes he doesn't give us what we want. You know, as we think about this, sometimes God says, or we pray to God, we say, God, I want children. And God says, no, that's not my plan for you. Well, sometimes we want a better job, and God says, no, that's not what I want for you. Where I have you is the mission field that I want you, and that's where I'm going to, that's the job I've given you to provide for your family. But no, no, I want you to stay there. Sometimes we want a, a bigger house and we can justify and say, well, if I have a bigger house, I can entertain more people and I can do more this and more that. And God says, no, that's not what I have for you. So often we have all kinds of expectations. We get this illness and I want to be healed. And God says, no, I don't want you to be healed because you have a greater impact by going through the illness. Sometimes God doesn't give us what we want. What do we deal with? How do we deal with that? That's where God's Word comes in very clear. Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for what? Good. To them that love Him. You see, there's a condition behind things working out to be good? Yes. What is a condition? I love God enough to trust Him. God, I trust You with whatever You're going to do with my life. I don't understand it. I may not like it, but I trust You. And to that person, God says, if you'll just trust me, you love me enough to trust me. This will be turned up for good. So when I don't get the children that I want, when I don't get the job that I want, when I don't get the health that I think I deserve, I have to know that God is still on the throne and that He knows exactly what He's doing and He's not made any mistakes. Sometimes God doesn't give us the fairy book and fairy tale book ending. But do I trust Him? Does he know exactly what he's doing? Yes, he does. 
So he removes the sandal, gives it to him, says, this is your land. In verse 9, Boaz says to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon. And I will also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among the relatives or from the gate of his home. You are witnesses today. So he goes on and makes it official. I will redeem the land. I'll take the responsibilities as he's already said he would do. And he said, I'll take Ruth to be my wife. And I'll perpetuate that name on that land. What a blessing to know that there are people who will in humility and lowliness will do what is right no matter what the outcome. As we said earlier, what a, look at verse 11. The elders and all the people who were at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in efforts and famous in Bethlehem. Now, think about this. If you read the genealogy, what took place? From Boaz and Ruth come children, 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 David, children, children, who? Jesus Christ. Talk about a blessing. Can you imagine for a moment? There are several things. I don't know the connection completely, but I was going through my mind in the last couple days. This other Redeemer didn't want his children to be half Gentile and half Jewish. Well, who are those people in the New Testament? Anybody remember? Huh? Half Jew, half, half Gentile? The Samaritans. Remember how Jesus was? He said, I, got, I must go through Samaria. Must needs go through there. He went to the people that other people rejected. Isn't that amazing? This other guy didn't want to be associated with these half-breeds. But at the same time, these were the people that Jesus came to die for and give his life for. Who's that sound like? Every one of us. None of us are worthy. None of us are deserving. And yet God in his mercy and his grace extends his love to us. I love this. And we're reading about Boaz, how he's such a man of character who was willing to take the responsibility of doing what was right when no one else would. I like what Charles Stanley often says, do what's right and let the chips fall where they may. Do what's right. God will honor, always honor obedience. Always. In this circumstance, God honored obedience. And how did he do that? Here's Ruth, Naomi. They're going back to Bethlehem, back to their homeland, Back to where it was, you know, at least for Naomi, home. But Ruth makes a step and says, Your God will be my God, your people will be my people. And so I, and makes the commitment to go and to be part of it. I'm sure she didn't know at the moment what that was going to entail. But God honored the obedience and the commitment to follow Him. And in our lives, God will always honor obedience. Even when it's hard even when you can't see what's coming down the line, God will honor obedience. He promises that. And not only just honor Ruth, but by her obedience and her commitment to do what's right, 
Naomi was taken care of for the rest of her life. I'm sure she could never have foreseen that. She could have, she, there's no way she could have foreseen that. It's another story like Abraham, just go and I'll tell you when to stop. Okay, God, I'll go. God honors obedience. As we look at the end of the story here, and we're going to finish up one more week next week, and then as we get into Christmas. In fact, turn the, turn, look at the last verse of the Bible. We're not going to spend time there, but look at the last verse in, uh, of chapter, excuse me, chapter 4. Verses 18 through 22. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, who fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon who fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, who fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse, who fathered David. And so on. The blessings of following God's lead are incredible. And the question that we have to answer in our own lives is, are we willing to follow to the end? Even though we may not be able to foresee. Even though we may not know what's coming around the corner. Are we willing to do what's right? God will take care of the rest if you just trust Him. He'll take care of the rest. He did this over and over. But will we stay faithful and obedient to to the commands of God? I hope that as we look at this story that we see a picture of hope. A picture of, 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 of God being in control even though we can't see the circumstances. God is in control. Doing behind the scenes what we could never see out front. But our job is just to follow and to obey and to do what's right and leave the consequences to Him. So what area of obedience are we not being faithful in? What area of obedience or or following God have we not been faithful in? Are we willing to make those changes knowing that God will honor obedience? Let's pray.